Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Do you have a hard time focusing? Do you feel like you want to give your attention to things that will move you forward or help you reach your goals, but you find yourself getting distracted? If so, today's episode is for you, my friend. Welcome to Balance Black Girl. My name is Les. I'm your host, and this show is all about getting our lives together, together. And today we're wrapping up our Reframing the Reset series, which was our theme this month, where we focused on the various ways that we can hit the reset button in our lives. We've covered everything from habits to digital self-care, exercise and nutrition, reframing our relationship with alcohol, and today we're talking about owning our focus. I'm going to start off by sharing some advice for managing your attention and improving your focus. And later in the episode, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Tara Zinneman, neuroscientist, yogi, and instructor on Open, which is my favorite meditation app. Your attention is an incredibly valuable resource, and what you pay attention to can shape your reality. And when I say your attention is valuable, I mean that figuratively and literally. Of course, what you focus on can impact how you feel and behave, but your attention can also have monetary value. The advertising industry is worth $500 billion, billion with a B, globally, which is a lot of resources designed to get your attention and convince you to buy things. Between companies looking to sell to you, industries conditioning you to see their offerings as a need, content creators looking to influence you, and the events and responsibilities of your daily life and just the world at large, there's a lot of things vying for your attention at once, and it's no wonder so many of us feel overwhelmed. And for me, what feels the worst is when I feel like I'm directing my attention in places that don't align with my values, what I want, or what is important for me. So though there are a lot of things looking to get a piece of our attention, we aren't helpless here. To an extent, we can direct where we want our attention to go. We can direct our attention towards what we value and what we want and what is important to us. But what feels hard is when we allow our attention to be used by things that just drain us. But when we're able to direct more of our attention to what fills us up and moves us forward, that is an entirely different feeling. When we're able to remain focused, we can think clearly. We're more likely to make better decisions. When we focus on doing things efficiently and the right way, we can save so much time that can go instead towards things that bring us joy right? And when we do this, we're less stressed and we're more engaged. 
Research by the University of Colorado has shown that where we direct our attention to can impact our performance. In their study, they had two groups of people stay in a wall-sit position until fatigue. I'm having flashbacks to PE class and volleyball practice just thinking about a wall-sit. But one group was instructed to focus their attention on an external focus point, so focus on something that was not themselves or a part of their body. The second group was instructed to focus on the position of their legs while they were in the wall sit. And the group that had an external focus point essentially had an easier time. Their perceived exertion was lower and it took them longer to get to fatigue versus the participants who were focused on the position of their legs. It was basically brought their attention to their physical bodies, how tired they were, and it made the exercise feel harder. They became tired faster and couldn't hold the position as long. Where you put your attention is so incredibly powerful and where you direct it can have a profound impact on how you experience things in your life. I truly believe that for many of us, we, myself included, who can be easily distracted or maybe tend to focus on things that are not necessarily helping us, have the opportunity to develop attention management like any other skill. It's part of our human experience to learn how to manage our attention in ways that can help us improve our experiences. So let's talk about some of the ways we can master the art of our attention and improve our ability to focus. First, I want to talk about the different types of attention because on a given day, we can be moving through these different types of attention depending on where we are and what we're doing. Now, there are four main types. There's focused alternating, sustained, and divided. So focused attention is pretty self-explanatory. It's our ability to focus on a single piece of stimuli. Alternating attention is how well we can maintain our attention when switching between tasks or focal points. Sustained attention is our ability to focus on a single task or point for an extended period of time. And divided attention, which is the most challenging, is essentially the ability to focus on multiple things at once. Now, there's also another type of attention called selective attention, and that's essentially our ability to direct our attention to stimuli that we deem as relevant and ignore stimuli that we deem irrelevant. So it's how well we're able to focus when in the presence of distracting stimuli. And this is probably the most common type of attention that we're able to use each day. So when selective attention is sufficient, it's basically our brains protecting us from complete information overload by only processing processing what seems most important at that time while filtering out other details that you know may seem less important. So I want to talk a bit about selective attention because I think selective attention is really important for us especially when we're all confronted with so much stimuli all the time. At any given time, we are receiving sensory inputs from all different directions that we don't even realize. Our brains are essentially filtering out this information without us even being aware of it. And this idea is often depicted as a bottleneck, right? So think of lots of stimuli coming through the bottom of the bottle, but only the most important information making it through the narrow neck of the bottle. Now, this is also known as the cocktail party effect, which is the ability to focus on one conversation while tuning out other things that are happening in a stimulating space. Like when you're having a conversation at a cocktail party and you're able to focus on who you're talking to without getting distracted by all the conversations that are happening around you. 
Now, selective attention can be a slippery slope depending on where our attention is going. If we find that we get sucked in by distractions when what we need to be focusing on is right there, it may be because we're selectively focusing on what is going to be most stimulating in that moment, but it may not actually be what is most important or what is best for us. So as I mentioned in the digital self-care episode we did a few weeks ago, I have been very selectively attentive to my For You page on TikTok when there are absolutely other things around me that I could have been focusing on. So when we are in distracting environments where there's a lot going on, but we still need to focus, training to improve our selective attention and to guide it towards where it best serves us is so beneficial for improving our focus. And I'm going to talk through some ways we can work to improve our selective attention. So though these habits can be helpful for most people, I do want to acknowledge that selective intention can be impaired from some health conditions. So ADHD, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, these are all conditions that can impact your selective attention. This information is not medical advice or treatment. So if you have been diagnosed with one of these conditions or something else that can impact your selective attention, please continue working with your doctor. Now, if you're looking to improve your selective attention and focus, there are some things we can do to strengthen our focus, almost like a muscle, like we were talking about in the strength training episode a few weeks ago. First and foremost, the thing that we can do to improve our focus is exercise. You probably knew this was coming. If there's one thing I'm going to tell you to do, it's to move your body in one way or another. As little as 10 minutes of exercise, particularly exercise that improves coordination, such as balance exercise or jump roping, has been shown to positively impact cognitive performance and attention, all right? So as little as 10 minutes of movement can support our ability to concentrate on the tasks in front of us. That's actually part of why I'm such a big fan of morning movement because I feel like I can focus so much better the rest of the day if I've moved my body first thing. But whatever you can do, whenever you can do it, makes such a big difference. Second is sleep. Sleep is essential, which is often why sleep disorders and the inability to focus tend to go hand in hand. And tasks that require greater attention often lead us needing more sleep. And we need higher quality sleep at that, right? So the break from attention and being on alert while we sleep is incredibly important and fuels our ability to pay attention and remain focused when we are awake. Okay, sleep regulates our ability to pay attention. Now, the third is brain training. I actually got this term from Rob Deerdeck. You may remember him from Robin Big back in the day. I kind of fallen off with Rob Deerdeck, uh, but he's actually evolved to share really interesting content about lifestyle design and business and balance. And one of the things that he has talked about is brain training. Essentially, it's just cognitive training, whether that's playing brain games or puzzles, learning a new skill, learning a new language, basically introducing your brain to new ways of working to stay 
sharp. So these things require focus and attention because we're learning something new. We're very focused on a new skill or trying to solve a problem in a puzzle or learning new words. And that focus and attention that we get from doing these activities can actually be channeled in other areas of our life. So for me, brain training currently looks like currently relearning French. I've been studying French every day. I took it in high school and college, and I really want to become proficient. Fluent is very ambitious, but proficient. Uh, And I've also recently started taking tennis lessons. And so the coordination that comes from learning how to play tennis, especially as an adult, is a really big challenge. So those are some of the ways that I'm currently training my brain. But any new skill that you learn, not to be good at it, but just to challenge your brain is so good for you, especially as you age. Now, the last thing we're going to cover when it comes to improving our selective attention is practice and repetition. So if you listen to our most recent episode on the importance of strength training, this is going to start sounding familiar. When you're strength training, the heavier the weights and or the more repetitions you do, the stronger you get. Again, it's the same with focus. The more you practice focusing and persevering through distraction, the better you get at it. The more you're able to resist your phone and focus on the task at hand, the easier the task at hand becomes. Like begets like. So if you do get distracted or lose focus, don't beat yourself up or assign labels to yourself like, oh, I can't focus or I can't this or I can't that. This is all practice. Every moment is an opportunity to flip the script and to make a new decision and to start implementing another habit. It's all practice, okay? So if you can set a timer and focus on something for 20 minutes, celebrate that. If you can set a timer and focus on something for five minutes, celebrate that. Take note of that. Affirm that you were able to do that. Understand what worked for you during that five minutes or during that 20 minutes so that you can repeat it again. And if you find yourself feeling really distracted, study that. Take note of that. What's going on in your environment? What's distracting you? How did you sleep? What's on your mind? What have you eaten? How can you implement some of the things that have worked for you when your focus was a bit better, right? What's one thing that you can apply today that can help? Become a student of your own habits to continue getting stronger and improving in this area. So that's just a little taste of just understanding our attention and focus and how that works and what we can do to strengthen it. We're going to pause here and take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to dig a bit deeper into the relationship between mindfulness and focus with our guest, Tara Zinneman from Open. So we'll be right back after the break. Hello, y'all. So as you know, I love using the app open for my mindfulness practices, particularly their guided meditations, their breathwork classes, and yoga flows. I use it every day. I'm happy to have open as a friend of the podcast, but I'm particularly excited to be joined by Dr. Tara Zinneman as our guest today. I was introduced to Tara from her work on open, and I'm so excited to have her here. Welcome. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. I actually have been doing my own homework and research and been listening to the podcast and it's beautiful. I think it serves such a gorgeous purpose that we have within our community as Black women. And I'm just really excited to be here to chat with you myself. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. So Tara, you have had some 
just incredible experiences that have kind of culminated to where you are now that I would love to get into. You are a neuroscientist, so you are Dr. Tara, as I should say. You are a former dancer, you're a yogi, you're a mindfulness teacher. How did you come to have these experiences and how have they intersected for you? Let me start off by saying I have a lot of Gemini in my chart. <laughs> love it. Yes. I'm not a Gemini son, but I feel like I've lived different vignettes, a lot of different small uh, moments in time where I focus on one thing and then I'm like, oh, I love this and I get distracted. It's kind of like uh, growing up, I loved dancing. My aunt, well, we called her my aunt, but she's my older cousin. She owned a dance studio on the South side of Chicago and there aren't very many black owned dance studios on the South side of Chicago. Um, and it was just like a family tradition that everyone like tried to dance. They would just like see if they had two left feet or see if they could actually do a little something, something. And as it happened, I took to dance really, really early on, about eight. Loved, loved, loved dance. Also had a really strong um, musical element in my family. My mom worked at Capitol Records back in the 90s at the beginning of hip hop when hip hop first hit the scene. Um, so I, my mom was 22 when she had me. So she was definitely a lot closer to me in age than a lot of my friends' moms. So she and I were really, really close. And as much as I won't lie and say that she encouraged me to dance, she kind of encouraged me to, you can dance on the side, but mm -hmm. you gotta have some options. I think yeah. her biggest thing was always me having options. So luckily my mother had the wherewithal to lie about where we lived um, so that I could go to a better school, which is illegal. And it's absolutely ridiculous that it is. But I lived in a very nice, not nice, I should say, uh, a not nice area on, on the south side of Chicago, but I ended up going to a nice school. So went to school in Beverly Hills, which is not Beverly Hills of Los Angeles, but still <laughs> uh, a much better school district. My mom was able to get um, someone who she knew to give her their address and get some bills in her name so that I could go to this better grade school. Ended up going to a selective enrollment uh, high school for those four years. I went to Walter Payton College Preparatory High School, um, which is one of the best schools in, in the state of Illinois. And I was really, really blessed to be able to have a great education, but it was always um, instilled within me that because I had the option to go to school, that that was kind of a requirement, kind of a non-negotiable, not like it wasn't said that way, but it was very clear, it was very clear that, you know, me being a first generation college student and getting an opportunity to go to a small liberal arts college, like 2000 students and get a full ride, essentially, that I could not do that because I wanted to dance instead. Like I wanted to go to like a dance school for high school, like a, a school for the arts. And my mom was like, girl, you thought, <laughs> um, <laughs> girl, bye. <laughs> uh, so in the end, um, got into a really good college, uh, did a semester abroad um, in London, loved it. And the only way to stay abroad was to do a master's program. So I did my master's um, in neuroscience. My undergrad was in psychology and neuroscience. So I did a master in neuroscience, then um, ended up staying, worked as a scientist for a couple of years. And for me, I always loved the idea of being a psychiatrist. Um, that was where I wanted to serve my community. But very early on in doing internships during college, I realized that 
it's just medication management. And being a therapist is very different than being a psychiatrist and takes a lot of emotional labor that I'm not sure I was willing to give at that time. So ended up working for a few years in industry, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and did a PhD at the National Institute of Mental Health within the National Institute of Health in DC. And that was kind of a joint program. So I was able to still stay in London for a couple of years. Um, so the joint program was with the University College London, and I straddled the two. And it was honestly the best experience I could have had. I was able to slowly tick off the things that I didn't like. I was like, oh, industry, like being a product developer, like head of a, like a product owner. Don't like that. <laughs> then it was like, okay, how about we work in um, government? Like, how's that? Lots of red tape, being at the NIH during Trump times, having my research shut down twice. Because the government wasn't funded, also not cute. You can't really, there's so much bureaucracy, you can't really get much done. Um, And I just was able to go through step by step. It's like, do I want to be in academia in the US? No. Do I want to be in academia in the UK? Also no. Um, So (laughs) as I went through all these iterations of trying to figure out, like, how can I make this thing that I've been trained to do, that I do well, that my family and my society kind of puts upon a pedestal. Um, oh my God, you're so smart. You're a scientist. You can be a doctor. Do it. And there were very many opportunities that I had to kind of quit to just kind of, oh, I'll just take, I'll just take another, another master's degree instead of mm-hmm. finishing my PhD. And I was very tempted to, especially being a black woman in academia, in industry. It after a long time, it really can start to feel crushing, for lack of a better word. Um, it's exhausting in a lot of different ways not unlike being a black woman, period. (laughs) So um, being in the, being particularly in the science field was really draining for me. So I ended up taking, while I was doing my PhD, I took a month, I did my yoga teacher training. I'd been doing all of my yoga. um, In addition to all of the dance, technically when I was a dancer, I had to cross train doing yoga and Pilates once a week. So yeah, it was a lucky accident that I found yoga. And once I finished my PhD, I said, you know what, let me take a second. I need mm-hmm. a moment. Yes. And as I did, um, I took a little, I called it a sabbatical. I went and taught yoga in Rome. I taught on a couple retreats in Tuscany and just paused. And I said, I'm going to give myself a year to just teach yoga, take a little brain break and see what happens. And that was at the end of 2019. So I ended up getting (laughs) stuck, getting stuck kind of um, in that sabbatical. But then around um, 2020, I started teaching um, digitally. I started just, you know, doing the Zoom teaching. And a lot of personal stuff meant that I wasn't in Los Angeles. I ended up needing to go take care of my mom in Philly after she was diagnosed with cancer, advanced stage cancer. Mm -hmm. So yoga was kind of all I had being a caretaker, being a caregiver um, during those times and finding ways to discover what little sanity I could, what little home I could find, whatever safety I could find um, and security within my body, within my mind, even though didn't always do it because it was a very messy time for everyone, not just those who are caregivers, but just in general. 
And yeah, it's been a really weird, windy road from like, I want to dance. No, go to school. And then in the end being like, okay, I'm going to go to school. But now I found yoga. How can I mesh these two? And as I ended up open, found me as I ended up teaching. And I was very, very happy to find a home where I could teach yoga and also do some of the neuroscience research that I'm also trained to do. So in the end, in a very windy road, I was able to kind of combine the two, which is what I'm doing now. And I'm I'm grateful to find a place where I can put the two pieces together. Yes. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. There are like a few elements that I, I definitely want to come back to, but I love there's a lot of, I know, no, there's, I know I'm like, there's so many good pieces in here, but I love the windy roads because everyone's road is windy, but we don't talk about it. We see like step A and then step Z, but the whole alphabet is all over the place. And especially when we're so used to engaging in each other's lives on social media and in these short little snippets where it seems like A to Z is just this straight line, oh. like those windy roads, we got to talk about it and and bring each other along while we're there. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, it's funny because a lot of people also don't discuss how often they almost quit on that road, yes. how often they almost sat down or turned around or even just like took a detour and then just stayed someplace that may have been less challenging. And I think especially as Black women, we go through so much, but we don't talk about so much. Mm -hmm. There were plenty of times where I did not feel heard in in the creation of my dissertation, in my defense, even in these fields that are dominated by this like Honestly, at the end of the day, it's also capitalism that permeates into science because it's who is giving you the money to do this research and then how much can you bring to the organization or to the pharmaceutical company that's funding you. And in those moments, it just feels like your labor is so, it sometimes just feels stolen. (laughs) And it's and it's so yeah. exhausting as a black woman to say like, no, I think we should go down this road and then being like, no, you don't know anything like you're just a PhD student like you don't know what you're talking about or also no, this isn't going to bring us revenue. So we shouldn't go down this road. And there were so many so many times where I just wanted to quit. I wanted to say, yeah. nope, I don't want to do this anymore. Like this is barely my passion, but I would go to the NIH huge facility in Bethesda, Maryland, and all the security guards were black. All of the cage technicians who washed the cages for the animal research were black and Latino. And I would go in, there were a couple times where I'd like forget my ID. And I'd be like, oh, like I need to go through security and like get a badge. And they'd be like, oh, are you a summer student? And I was like, no, I'm a PhD student. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a fellow. And they're yeah. like, they're, the, the, the look on their faces would change. There would be such a sense of like pride in me doing that. And yeah. those little moments are what kept me going for better or for worse, doing something that maybe I didn't really have any business doing because very early on, I was like, I'm kind of miserable. This isn't where I want to be. But finishing and 
as I walked across the stage, seeing my mother beaming, a single mother from the South Side of Chicago who had a daughter at 22 when she was a baby of her, like she was herself was a baby. And those moments make it worth it. And I have options, mom. So now let me do what I need to do. Let me follow passions. But it really is sometimes like a similar to what first generation children feel, um, the, the pressure from, from their family members to, you know, be a doctor or a lawyer, an engineer, like all of those things. Um, but within the black community, because those opportunities are so rare, given the 400 years we've experienced, it, it means that we have to also do a little bit of the grunt work that we may not want to do. Um, and finding that balance between the two is, I think, the key. Finding something that you can do for your community, but also for yourself. It's a balancing act, but and it takes a little, a little, a little trial and error to figure it out, but we get there. It does. Yeah. And I think so much can change from generation to generation. I could relate to a lot of elements of your story. I also had very young parents. And I think for our parents' generation, what they wanted most for us was security and stability because that was far harder for them to get than it ever should have been. And now that I'm thinking, okay, the generations that come after me, I want them to have freedom and flexibility to pursue what it is that they want to pursue. What do we, how do we operate when stability is a given? What does it look like if stability is a given and, and we can build on top of that? And that's what I'm hoping our future generations can explore more. Yeah, that's the dream to, as my mom said, give our children options, not to be forced down one path because we're afraid of the scarcity that could come down the road, but for us to be able to grow our own wealth and find our own sources of abundance and whatever, if we're talking about this capitalist system and we're talking about like passive income, whatever those things are, we're talking about, owning property, whatever we need to do to be able to have enough and to have enough stability, security, so that our future generations have choices that they can make. Absolutely. And at first, the first generation doesn't have choice. Right. And it's in each of our lineages where we decide, are we (laughs) going to be the ones to do it? And sometimes you're like, okay. (laughs) I know sometimes I want to be like, get somebody else to do it. But then I'm like, but, but then who, you know, (laughs) not us, then who? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I would love to dig more into where the different areas of your work have intersected because I'm just so excited to talk to you both having both a neuroscience and a mindfulness background and those two things I think just pair so beautifully. And so I'm so excited to learn from you and to have our community learn from you. And, you know, in this episode, in the segment earlier, just before this interview, I had talked a lot just about attention and understanding how valuable our attention is. Like our attention is a commodity that so many things outside of us want. (laughs) They want a piece of it, whether it is like social media platforms wanting our attention to stay on it, whether it's advertisers wanting our attention so that we buy their stuff, 
But I think when we are able to have just a little bit more agency over our attention, there's so much power in that. So I would just love to learn what your relationship with your attention has been like. Beautiful question. I, for the longest time, would overextend and overstretch myself, which meant that I never gave anything the attention it deserved or required. I remember being back in college, it was me being the advertising manager for the newspaper and having a student campus job of like the, uh, I would put up the slides, like the old school, like projector (laughs) slides for all the art history classes, like, which in and of itself is really kind of weird that all the kids who are on scholarships have to work for the university. Like, Mm -hmm. that's icky. Mm -hmm. Um, But getting all these additional jobs and then being on the track team, I ran track and field. I did long and triple jump. So I was doing that, but also on the dance company and also pre-med and also like, it was just so much. And I carried that into the rest of my twenties into my thirties of me just saying, if I just do more and accomplish more then that means that I am this well-rounded person. But in actuality, I was spreading my attention way too thin. Um, And I think that COVID gave us the opportunity to slow things all the way down. But also there was a lot of kind of trauma and it felt like you were just trying to survive that period of time, especially during the lockdown lockdowns, not saying COVID's over because it's not. But in those uh, first few months where everything was shut all the way down, we were really confronted with what do we want to give our attention and give our time to and give our votes to what we look at, who we follow, what content we engage with is a vote, a vote for or against this X, Y, and Z. And as we take these moments to slow down and start to do the uncomfortable work of starting to notice where we're spending our attention, even just like having the screen time report that comes up on Sundays where you're like, oh God, I don't want to (laughs) know. It's like, (laughs) but having those reminders and instead of being ashamed of what we are spending our time doing, having those moments of acceptance and awareness, acknowledgement, and being able to then start to craft a path towards what we do want to spend our attention on. And for me, for a long time, I was like, I'm going to read three books a month. Like I can spend some. And then I was like, girl, no, like, <laughs> <laughs> like you're tired. You're traumatized from COVID. Like look at the TikTok videos that make you laugh for a little bit, but how can you also put a limit on it? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's your little reward. That's your little treat at the end of the night from like 8.30 to 9, like, or 8.30 to 10.30, like whatever that time is for you, sticking to it. And it's hard to create these habits without being super rigid, but just try and see what happens instead of saying, if I don't do all of it, then I'm going to do none of it. You know, like if I miss, you know, if I go over my 30 minute allotment and I do 35, then I might as well just not even do it next week. And it's finding those ways to create focused attention after you take those moments to acknowledge and notice where your attention is now and where you want it to be going forward. That's so helpful. That awareness of, okay, where am I 
spending my attention, right? If it were like money, like where are all the places that are getting the deposits of my attention? And is this in alignment with how I want to feel? And if you want to feel amused and like you were just seeing things that tickle your soul, then that time on TikTok can be very well spent because it's hilarious. And if you want to feel differently and it's not well spent, then you can kind of reevaluate what that looks like for you. But I love that you encouraged not getting so hung up on the all or nothing because it's so tempting. Yes. So many family members of mine have always been like, oh, like, what do I do to change my diet? What do I do to, you know, change my, the way I move my body? And it is always this all or nothing, you know, or this really strong sprint. And then it just like collapses instead of realizing that all of these things are a marathon, not necessarily a sprint. And even when we're talking about yoga or breath work or meditation, there will be ebbs and flows. Life happens, but it's about finding space and grace for yourself when you fall off the wagon. It's all good. Like we're human. We're in this human experience, not to be perfect monks, not to have the perfect timed day, perfectly timed day. It's about exploring, experimenting, and the holidays came and you went to too many parties, you're hungover and you want to not read a book and, you know, not meditate, go for it. It's all Mm -hmm. good. But finding those ways to bounce back and acknowledge your humanness, your humanity, and just trying. It's, It's a practice and it's not about getting it perfect. Oh, absolutely. I think that's why the word practice, especially, you know, in the instance of yoga or breath work or whatever is so important because it's never, there's not like an end goal or an end destination. It is truly something that we just continue doing and working with and meeting ourselves where we are each day. Cause it's going to feel totally different each day. Mm-hmm. Every every time um, I start the movement practices I teach, I'm like, check in with where your breath is sitting today, right now. As we're doing a forward fold, we're like, how are your hamstrings in this moment? Given what you've done the day before, given what you've done the month before, and it's ever changing. And especially as women, as we're like going through our cycles, we're in different phases of our cycles and we're in different phases of our lives. Like all of these things will change the way you experience the exact same practice. And it's just the awareness of it and saying, Oh, I'm too sore. I'm too tight. I'm going to lay on the floor in child's pose. And that's my practice for the hour. You know, I'm going to do a yoga nidra and fall asleep. Like that's my practice today. (laughs) And having those options, having those, um, that variability, um, and that openness to, to shift things in response to your body. Oh, absolutely. Like listening to those cues that your body is trying to give you and it has no assessment of your value and what you can do or what you can't do. It's just information your body is giving you in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not to out myself as like an anti-capitalist, but it's capitalism, it's white supremacy, it's all of these all of these systems working in connection together. It's anti-blackness, it's mm-hmm. it's productivity culture, it's grind culture, it's hustle culture. All of these things that we've been taught from children and like American exceptionalism, which is we need to do more, we need to be the best and also the fallacy of a meritocracy. Like if you just do all of the things right, you will get to the peak of your career and you will become a millionaire. And that's just not how things work. And as we've been kind of 
bathed in, like marinated in all of these thoughts of this is how you have to be a human in this society. It doesn't look like that. And COVID really taught us that, that a lot of these things, a lot of these systems fall apart when it's a matter of collective care, collective well-being, if it's a matter of creating a, a social safety net. We have none of those things. Right. Not that people haven't been saying that for centuries, but unfortunately, that's still what we're left with. We're left with, okay, so my calendar, my schedule needs to look the same because we've got seven days, we've got five work days, two weekends. And yes, that's what we have to work with for most of us. Um, not everyone can be an entrepreneur or be like well off and go like live in Bali and be like, oh, my partner is paying for this. And now I teach yoga here. Like just live your dreams. Like in the yoga world, I see that trope all the time, all the time. and it infuriates me. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the ways that we can start to finagle the system to work on our behalf those are the places where we find the magic of saying like, look, I do have to work five days a week, sometimes six, I have to work overtime. But my way of getting my exercise or movement or whatever that is, maybe that's gentle stretching. Until I can find the more energy, more like life force to be able to do more, that's what it is. And it is, again, going back to that all or nothing mentality, like I have to do Barry's boot camp and exhaust myself and deplete my energy stores, as opposed to finding something that's more nurturing, given whatever phase you're at, whether you're injured, you know, what, whatever that may be, whether you're taking care of someone else, all of these things need to be adjustable. And the way that our yoga culture, workout culture, wellness culture mm -hmm. has created these tropes is infuriating and throw throw the whole thing away. Throw it away. A la poubelle. Throw the whole thing away. <laughs> I could not agree more. I've been thinking a lot about productivity specifically. And I've talked about it a bit on the podcast where I have started redefining it for myself, kind of that traditional definition of productivity, which is like, do as much as possible so that you can do more. Just never sat well with me, but I'm also not into like inventing new words. So I'm like, okay, how can I make words that exist work better for me? And I've been really leaning into this idea of, I call it spacious productivity. So I feel most productive when I'm creating the most space. Like how can I do less things? And if I can create more space to do things that bring me joy or to spend time pouring into myself or pouring into the people I love, that's productive. And it has not really anything to do with my to-do list because honestly, almost everything on my to-do list is made up. Almost everything that we feel like we have to do is made up and like, who cares? <laughs> that part. <laughs> I think that was my biggest takeaway from uh, COVID and the pandemic was that literally everything is made up. It's all made up. Everything. Except for like the seasons and, and nature. And the things that we put value in are yes. made up. Yes. Like I, I love the exception for nature, though. <laughs> yes. I'm like, that's the only thing that's real. When people are like, well, time isn't real. And I'm like, well, seasons are real. And, yeah. you know, like that that's a measure of time that's I real. I <laughs> had a reckoning recently. I think it was maybe last year. I was like, why does the year start in January? Who made that up? Like right. when everything's dead, right. everything's tired and hibernating. Why is that the beginning? And turns out it's the ancient Greek god, Janus, which 
the ancient Romans were just like, we like this guy. Like, let's make a holiday. And it's something about like, John who's had a, a face looking forward and a face looking back. And it ended up, I don't know, representing something. But it's like a pagan god. Like, that's why we celebrate New Year here. Like, I don't trust it. Yeah. It it's made sense. up. Right. Exactly. I, so now I'm like, my New Year is spring. Like, when things start Which waking up, like, because in the middle of this, of, of this, first of all, the sun's going down at four thirty, and you want me to stay up till midnight, right? <laughs> celebrating. Huh? It's just it, the things that you choose not to put your coins in, to not deposit, <laughs> to not deposit into that bank of like, I'm not going to subscribe to that, right? So that realization that so many things are are made up is a it's a life changer. Really, it's a, it it's brings you one. some peace because then you're like, who cares? Yeah. That's been my motto, 2020 and beyond. And so? Right. Says who? Where are they at? Yeah, according to whomst. Right. Whomst. (laughs) And so kind of along those those same lines, as I think about wanting to create more space to either do things that I love, spend time with people I love, just be quiet. Something that has really helped me a lot is – beginning to understand focus and kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier with attention, I realized that me giving my attention to things that didn't actually matter was occupying a lot of space. And when I started being mindful of where my attention went or when I started really working on my focus and maybe doing something right the first time instead of like half doing something while I'm half on Instagram and watching a podcast and doing all the things and it takes 10 times longer – that I was able to start creating more space, not to do more things, but to chill and to kick it yeah. and to be <laughs> whomever I wanted to be. So I would love to talk a little bit more about focus and why it feels like focus is so hard and maybe ways that we can make focus not feel so hard. I mean, there's so many companies vying for our attention at any given moment. We are constantly distracted. Our attention spans are getting smaller. And it's just a fact. It's where we're going as a culture, as a society. But we do have these ways to start to pull our focus and our attention back. Unfortunately, some of the things to do are to reduce screen time, especially on social media, doing as much as you can off of the computer, because there are so many studies that show that reducing computer time, you end up having a a longer attention span, spending more time in nature, going for walks. But a lot of these things are really inaccessible when we're talking about working a nine to five, working remotely or working in an office, you're still on the computer, you know, or living in an urban environment like I can't go for a country walk. Like I live in the <laughs> middle of Los Angeles. What? I have to like drive 50 minutes in traffic. Like these things are are inaccessible, but the ways that we can start to within the realms of reality start to pull ourselves away from these kind of traps that were that are set for us that are easy to fall into because they're designed in that way is to schedule in time for yourself and holding that time as sacred, just as sacred as the time that you spend taking care of your children or your partner or your parents or your child, whatever it is, having that time for you being just as non-negotiable. 
you wouldn't not show up to pick your grandmother up from the doctor's office. No. So why would you not show up? And it's because it's easy. It's because it's, oh, I'm just so tired. I'll just not. Mm -hmm. But in those moments, like we're talking about before, having the flexibility to say, okay, maybe I won't do a Barry's boot camp, like whatever, you know, your go-to is maybe I won't like do this like Taekwondo class. (laughs) Instead, I'm just gonna chill do a little shavasana, do a stretch, have a cup of tea. Even if you shorten the amount of time, it's about creating consistency in one way, shape or form. And it doesn't necessarily have to be doing the exact same thing all the time. And there's so many studies that show that I think this study that I'm thinking about was in children with ADHD. So we're already talking about people who have even more difficulty focusing. I think it was just an eight-week protocol. And after eight weeks, there were children who ended up creating such significant improvements and like the accuracy rate and the reaction time on the tests of attention. So that's how they're measuring. They're looking at how long it takes to create the neuronal connections and to reaccess this information. And honestly, just eight weeks, eight weeks in even in novices, there's studies that show that people who don't meditate at all even after just 10 minutes of meditating, they can show improved focused attention on on tasks. And again, we're using reaction time as a measurement. So it's hardwired into us that if we can take a few moments to slow the circuitry down by slowing down our breath, by not slowing down our minds because literally they've evolved for hundreds of thousands of years to be active, to keep us safe, to look in you know, to look for danger, to alert us to potentially harmful situations. Um, So we're never trying to turn those things off. We're just trying to slowly start to become aware of those things. And once you become aware of maybe, oh, my mind constantly is going towards like, what was that noise? You can start to say, oh, my mind's just saying, what was that noise? Let me bring it back to whatever I'm focused on again. So it's a practice. (laughs) It's I I know that we're... um, in the age of quick fixes and easy solutions, but it's time and it's practice and it's a lot of discomfort, especially in the front end. And no one wants to talk about it. They're like on their Instagram reels and they're like, oh, this is how I changed my life. And now I read seven books a day. And (laughs) you're just like, okay, cool. But it's you're also forgetting about the fact that sometimes listening to your mind is miserable. <laughs> like on my t- on my Instagram, I like usually repost on Mondays. I do like a, a Monday meme drop, and a lot of it is just making fun of the wellness industry, making fun of like these people who say, "I have it all figured out. I've changed all these things," or like people who say, "Oh, I just sit here and meditate." And don't talk about the fact that sometimes it's horrible. Oh my <laughs> like, gosh! Right? Sometimes you like look at your thoughts and you're like, oh, I don't want to be here. Right. Oh, (laughs) I don't want to listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) So often, but at the end of the day, that comfort and the discomfort is what we end up finding. And we get through the sticky stuff. And sometimes things are smooth. Sometimes they are not. But as we start to find our way through a lot of the gunk, that's where we create that space. We create that space 
to also recognize that we aren't our thoughts. And that's, that's the tweet. That's, that's it. That's the gag. We aren't our thoughts. So as we, yes, have been funneled into this cyclical pattern of constantly being distracted, again, we shouldn't fault ourselves for falling into that trap because it's a very well laid out one that has been studied for like decades at least. And giving yourself the space and the grace to slow down start to notice the patterns and then start to do small things towards little changes. Yes, that is so helpful. I loved what you said about finding comfort in the discomfort, because I think a really big misconception that a lot of people have, especially when it comes to this wellness stuff, is that it's going to feel good. Like mm-hmm. when you sit and meditate, you're just going to feel bliss. You're, there would be nothing but clouds in your brain and it feels good. Like when you're doing yoga, it always feels good. And it's usually kind of the opposite. And when you have that realistic expectation, (laughs) makes it a lot easier to understand what you're doing. It's hell in here sometimes. Like, it's literally like, oh my God. But that doesn't mean that you're less enlightened because your mind flickers from side to side. It's natural. It's literally in the wiring of our brains. And once you acknowledge and accept that and then start to get into the icky stuff and you just get used to it. You just strap in and you're like, all right, let's do this. It's uncomfortable, but that's where you create a lot of the space to give yourself ease and grace and softness. And it was only for me after I started practicing yoga and I'll keep, I'll keep it on it. When I started yoga, yoga was marketed to me as alternative training for dance. Mm. It was literally for that purpose only. And it wasn't until I think I started yoga in 20, 2007. And about 2012 is when it started to feel more meditative. And I was able to start to see the space that I was able to create, not in like my body. Because when I approached yoga, it was very much like, okay, I have to nail this pose, just like I had to nail this dance move. And it's just really hard for a lot of us who come from Western societies, athletic backgrounds to not bring that in. Mm -hmm. But after years of practicing, the like, subtleties of the practice start to permeate your being. I literally heard myself say that and I was like, (laughs) it's true. (laughs) It's true. It's true. The subtleties really do start to sink in because for me, it used to be, I'm going to yoga for a workout. I'm doing going to yoga because I'm required to for my dance company. But then it became, I'm going to yoga to create space in my body. That was the intermediate. And then it was, I'm going to create space in my mind. And as I created that space for myself, that like temporal space of like, this is the hour or the hour and a half, because I used to be a psycho Bikram person. It's like, I'm creating this 90 minutes in this hot ass room (laughs) and like the the shower before, like the shower after and like getting there and like all of those things. It used to be, I'm creating this space in my day to do this. And then it became, I'm creating the space in my body. Then it became, I'm creating the space to have a calmer demeanor and more of an understanding for myself 
when I'm going through challenges, like, oh my God, this pose, I couldn't do it today. Like, oh my God, I did this yesterday. Why can't I do it today? And then being able to translate that into seeing other people going through their own struggles or showing up for me or with me in these ways that I wouldn't, but creating that space to be like, oh, okay, I get it. Sometimes shit just hard. Sorry. Yeah. Things are just it's difficult. True. I was like, can it's I curse? Okay. My yeah. bad. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> uh, sometimes everything's just rough. Yeah. And the more I was able to create more space for myself, I was able to create that same space for others. And it really is subtle the way that it, it starts to kind of ooze into the rest of your life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, what you said about that progression of creating space in your day, creating space in your body, creating space in your mind. I'm like, yes, that's, that's it. That's the progression right there. Mm-hmm. The part of that windy road we were talking about, those are stops along the way. Yeah. And it really was a blessing for me to have yoga in my back pocket when I was going into those meetings with men who would not take me seriously, who wouldn't listen to me as at that point, maybe a few months away from being a doctor and people still like I wasn't being taken seriously in this field that I had been in since for at least four to six years. And I was like, what? What do you mean? Right. What do you mean? You, I don't know what I'm talking about. Like I've, right. I've seen these recordings, I've done these experiments, I've looked at the data. I know these things, but it was very often those moments where I'd have to slow down, pause, and start to understand that they can't see what they can't see because they don't want to see it. And how can I change the way that I move within those situations to? stress myself out more than anything else because I deserve that peace that they're not willingly giving me. So I have to create that space and that peace for myself. So as I went through, my, I ended up doing an expedited PhD. So thank God I was out of there in less than five years instead of sometimes the like seven, eight, nine that people do. But it it helped so, so, so much. So finding those ways and finding those places and create space. It doesn't have to be yoga. Not everyone vibes with yoga. It doesn't have to be meditation. Maybe your space is cooking. You're chopping things. You're going on a walk. You're mindfully walking. Whatever it is, whatever it may be, but finding that space, those moments where you can start to turn down the dial of the distractions that you have, whether it's turning your phone on airplane mode and like, I'm just going to stretch for 10 minutes. Yeah. And it's creating those habits. And people always say, like, it takes 21 days to create a habit. That's not back science. It's more like 60 to 90 days. Mm-hmm. So as we strap in, and it's going to be comfortable. Like, 60 days is a long time. <laughs> That's a long yeah. I feel like it was so marketable to be like, just 21 days, three weeks, or 28 days. I can't remember what it was. But it's just like, it's a, like, it's a lot more than that. It's at least double. So notice that 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 part of you that gets upset and angry and frustrated and kind of like wants to catastrophize and blow the whole thing up because you didn't do it that one time Mm -hmm. notice that and give that part of yourself a little bit of comfort being like it's okay baby like we'll try again tomorrow yes and you know just making that time for you as um impenetrable as you do the requirements that are of you from others all of those 
I, I got to pick up my grandma. I got to pick, I'm not going to leave my grandma at the doctor's office. Okay. I'm not going to leave myself mm-hmm. like, n- with no mental space for me. <laughs> so, nonetheless, all the other people that I have to come into contact with on a daily basis. So taking your self-care just as seriously as you take care of others. Yes, absolutely. And the way you phrased it with finding that peace within yourself that you weren't getting externally, I think just puts it so beautifully because we we can't control how other people perceive us or if they take mm-hmm. us seriously or if they respect us or what they post or what they do, but we can self-soothe and we can take care of ourselves when we notice that we feel activated by it, right? I'm not even necessarily going to tell someone to control their reaction because sometimes we can't always just control mm, how we react. But, right. But we can take care of ourselves and, and nourish a bit if we notice that something did, you know, activate us and make us react. And just really prioritizing that I think is so important. Yeah. I, I tell myself all the time that there are opportunities now I have as an adult to give myself the care, the ease, the grace, the softness that life or whoever was involved in whatever situation couldn't or didn't give me. Yeah. That I have the opportunity, I have the strength, I have the capacity to give that to myself now. And what a what a blessing that is, even if it doesn't feel like it, because in those moments I'm like, what are you saying? Huh? And my hand starts to get angry. I start to get upset. My shoulders start to clench up. My jaw starts to clench. But I can now use those tools to take a deep breath, start to slow down my breath rate, start to slow down my heart rate. All of these little tools that you start to gain, you can use them to create the space that sometimes you're not given. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And set that example. Mm -hmm. I have this phrase where it's like, be the blueprint. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes you don't see the blueprint made for you because it's, it's supposed to be you, which again, sometimes I'd be like, get somebody else to do it. It's annoying. I don't want to be, but I also don't want to be in total chaos. Right. You're strongest soldier this time. Please. Please. (laughs) Leave me out of the strongest soldier group chat. I changed my number. I'm not here. Uh, that that part <laughs> unavailable <laughs> dnd goodbye <Right. laughs> immediately airplane mode right done <laughs> all 2023 <laughs> so before we kind of close out our conversation here just about focus and attention like i've loved this this has been so incredibly helpful just talking about these tools and practices I'd love to get a little bit into where the science meets the woo, because I think sometimes those things are communicated as if they're at odds, but I don't, I don't think they have to be. And I, I would love to talk a little bit more about how they intersect and, and what the intersection of mindfulness and focus looks like. Yeah, I I like to call myself woo adjacent. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite all the way woo, but definitely have always created space for there to be things that haven't been able to be recorded or replicated or measured in whatever ways that are tiny little puny colonial industrialized like westernized brains can can deal with. But I love 
the fact that now I have the research and the tools and the capacity to be able to speak to where these things converge, where they meet. And there's so many meditation, yoga, breath work have been around for thousands of years and have been used for so long in Eastern traditions. And we're just now finding out that a meditation practice can reduce the shrinking in the brain that we see related to age. Like newsflash, sorry, our brains shrink as we get older, (laughs) but you can reduce the amount of volume that's lost in the gray matter of the brain by meditating, Mm -hmm. by sitting and not, not thinking as meditation is sometimes kind of spewed out. It's slowing down and learning that awareness, that self-regulation. But yeah, and that, that self-awareness, slowing, slowing down the processes and slowing down the, the quickness, the rapidity with which we jump from thought to thought and noticing the patterns. And there's this saying where you notice, then you shift, and then you rewire the brain. And that's what we're doing in our yoga practice, in our breathwork practice, in our meditation practices. Um, There's, I mean, if we're going down the line, so we did meditation, let's go into breathwork. There's so many studies also that show that as we increase or decrease the respiratory rate, we can start to activate a a nerve within within the body, within the central nervous system called the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is essentially activated and that turns on the rest and digest. So it starts to slow down all of the uh, fight or flight responses that sometimes we can get. The amygdala, the hypothalamus is like ready to square up. And when we are in these situations, and then we have those moments where we can slow down our breath, breathe down using our diaphragm, which actually uh, stimulates the vagus nerve. So Mm -hmm. instead of breathing up into your chest, as you slow your breath down, as you use your breathing muscle, which is all the way kind of at the the base of your floating ribs, all the way down Mm -hmm. at the bottom, we're able to slow down all of these processes, respiratory rate, of course, but our respiratory rate is connected to our heart rate, is connected to the hormones and chemicals that we send from our brain to our body and from our body to our brain. So there's, again, thousands of years of people doing this, but we had to have, unfortunately, some like white dudes with an fMRI to make us believe it. Sure, now we have that. So let's go back to the wisdom that they were touting and let's yep. dig in, you know? And then there's so many studies that also show that, you know, yoga can change the attention that you're, you're able to give to whatever task. Yoga can increase self-compassion. Yoga can slow down uh, reactive judgments. It can make you feel more connected to source or connected to your community. There are so many studies now that are showing all these changes that yoga, breath work, and meditation separate and all together can create, but it's been there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all been there in, in all of these, these ancient brown communities. Yes. Um, I think I also am, would describe myself as woo adjacent, and I do think it's been really interesting to see conversations around kind of only viewing, you know, peer reviewed, researched things as credible. Now, I think there's definitely room for that. And I do agree, especially when it comes to things like 
supplements. And it, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there that needs to be regulated. And in terms of things like that, like, yes, please research, understand what it is we're putting in our bodies and how it's impacting us. But I do also think that that can be kind of capitalism's excuse for invalidating these ancient wisdoms. And mm-hmm. I think that there is a way to meet in the middle and really understand and, and pay respect to the validity of both. And I just, anyways, basically what no. you just said, but I appreciate I, it. <laughs> look, no, I totally agree. I think that it, it's hard to meet in the middle, but when we are commoditizing ancient practices yeah. that I believe should be free, there was a long time where pretty much all throughout COVID, all of my classes were donation-based. So you come, it's a Zoom link, just come. I'm running the class whether you're here or not. You know, I'd rather just have you there gaining the benefits and as a form of community care. Now, again, unfortunately, we live in a world where uh, there's a cost of living, aka you have to pay to exist. Yeah. So maneuvering our ways around that are finding the best ways, I should say, to maneuver around those facts while still caring for community, caring for yourself, valuing your time and your effort. It's it's just it's all really challenging. I'll just I'll just say that. It's uh it's it's messy, but capitalism is trying to commodify wellness, unfortunately. So the more ways that we can distribute these tools of wellness that you don't have to pay for, you barely have to pay for internet to get, you know, like all of these things are available at your public library for free. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's a, a market to withholding this information and then charging you for it. Yeah. And that's uh, the icky part. But as we're creating this widely available, these pieces of information, also as we create the studies that go behind a lot of these things, which Luckily, those are also going towards an open access, like free access uh, journal articles. I think that even the scientific community is getting fed up with the gatekeeping of a lot of this information. Uh, I think we're creating those shifts that we need. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. Making it easier for people to be informed and then people can make the best decisions for them based off of the information they have. But we need that information to be accessible. Yeah. That part. Yeah. Well, Tara, thank you so much. I absolutely loved this conversation. I feel just more calm and relaxed even (laughs) after having this conversation. And I think you have successfully convinced our community to definitely want to step up their practices when it comes to yoga, breathwork, and meditation. I mean, the slowing down brain shrinkage was a good selling point for me. Um, (laughs) Like. Keep that brain we're healthy. we're deteriorating flesh suits and all we can do is do as much maintenance as is within you know the realm of possibility considering all the other things we have to do like yeah. we have to create money and value yeah. in order to live but we also have to feed our bodies nourish our souls feed our spirits in order to be able to, to make all of those things worth doing and I would love if your community came and practiced with me. I'm teaching on yes. open on the open app. Happy to share a, a promo code for 33 days. If you don't already have one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we let's do. do that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We'll make sure that's in the show notes so that y'all yeah. can practice on open. I love the classes yeah. there and you can take some of Tara's classes. 
Yeah, it's all, um, there's live stream classes, there's on-demand classes. So we run the gamut. So I'd love to, to catch some people. There's a community chat, which is really sweet. So if you ever come into a class with me and be like, hey, I heard you on the Balanced Black Girl <laughs> podcast. And I'll be like, oh my God, hey. Yes, <laughs> And we do. can like connect IRL too. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, y'all listening, please do. When you take Tara's classes, let her know that, that you found her here um, yeah. so that we can all we can all connect there together. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Balanced Black Girl. I hope it inspired you to prioritize yourself and to prioritize some practices that can help you improve your focus. I would love to take one of Dr. Tara's classes with you on Open. So remember, you can get a free 30-day trial to Open by using the link in our show notes. Head to the show notes for more information about today's episode, as well as links to the resources mentioned. And thank you so much for joining me for this year's installment of Reframing the Reset. I've had an amazing time resetting with you and hope you have an amazing rest of your 2023. So next week, we will be kicking off our series on intimacy, which is a must listen for everyone. We're going to be talking about cultivating intimacy with ourselves, intimacy in our platonic relationships, why intimacy is so important for our health. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it and join us in Club Balanced, our community on Geneva, where we'll be kicking off our next monthly challenge as well as our February book club. So join us in the club and I'll see you next week.